When you exit the 145th Street subway station on the three line, on one side is the 145th Street Bridge, and on the other is a collection of small retailers and quick service restaurants. On a Friday afternoon, people are milling in and out of the bodega. On this block, Reverend Al Sharpton's civil rights group, the National Action Network, is there, a Dunkin' Donuts, and rather controversially, a truck depot. It's controversial because this location is the site of a major dispute between one developer and the local council member over a proposed new mixed-use project. But it's not just that. It's a microcosm, almost, of the arguments that are plaguing New York right now. Because while everyone agrees that the city is in a housing crisis, not everyone agrees on how to fix it. I'm Miriam Hall, and on this episode, we're talking about 145 Harlem, now renamed 145 Harlem for All, a proposed 900-unit mixed-use development that my guest Bruce Teitelbaum wants to build. A truck depot is now open in Harlem, but it was supposed to be a housing development. It opened on West 140. Developers of a controversial high-rise up in Harlem are now pulling their proposal. The group the project does not have the support, and that's putting it lightly, from the local council member Kristen Richardson-Jordan. She says the current offering of 51% affordability is just not enough. After months of back and forth, Bruce pulled the rezoning application last May. And, as he promised, he put in its place a truck stop, which is actually allowed to be there as of right. He's reapplying again now, and politicians have held protests on the site against this truck depot, saying that it's retaliatory and it's done out of spite. I asked Bruce if he's just doing this to prove a point. There's been one directly next door um, to the site where the truck lot is now, where there are trucks parked there and there's a parking lot, approximately 30 cars parked there on a daily basis. The distinction now is the lot that we opened a few weeks ago can accommodate 50 to 60 trucks, very large trucks and other vehicles. Um, so that hasn't been there before, but it's there now. The council member in that area says that you're doing it out of spite. Yeah. Uh, the Attorney General, Letitia James, says that you might be in breach of truck idling laws. What is the um, game plan here? Like, why are you putting a truck stop there? I can't imagine truck stops are particularly lucrative. So firstly, we advised the council member and the community during the review process because we were asked, what would we do if we weren't allowed to do um, the development? And we specifically said, that we would pivot to our as-of-right uses. And one of them is to put a parking lot, mm-hmm. not per se a truck depot, but a parking facility that would include trucks, cars, other vehicles. So what we're doing should come as no surprise to anyone. Secondly, it's not being done because we're vindictive. It's being done very simply because we need to do something with that vacant lot to generate income so that we can afford to pay back the banks and pay our mortgage. We just simply can't leave the place empty. Now, some people have said, that's a valid point, but why don't you do something else with it? Well, like what? There aren't that many as-of-right uses that we're allowed to do there that would also generate income. I could put a pet cemetery there, although I don't think that would be a great business. We could put um, a, a tannery. I don't think that's a great business or there's much you know, demand for it. So it's not being done out of spite. It's being done out of business practicality. We need to do something to generate income. Um, And it does generate income for us because, as you may or may not know, a huge issue in the city, it's a very big issue, is about commercial vehicles 
that are parked illegally on the street. And this is a citywide problem. So you're not doing it to prove a point? You're not doing it to put pressure on? No, to the, to the contrary, I think that what we've done is present the community, well not the community, because the community I think generally wants this project. It's this council member, and we've given her a choice. You know, she has a choice. She can support our project, which would bring $700 million in investment into Harlem and all the good stuff that we wanted to do, or she could have a truck depot, a self-storage facility, and purely market rate housing. So it's basically, this is the reality of life. You know, this is not, you know, rhetoric. It's not, you know, uh, an academic discussion about what we can and can't do. This is like where the rubber hits the road and where real life comes into play. So we've just told her that she can choose and we'd l much, much prefer not doing a truck depot. Um, that's not the highest and best use of the site. So the site's at um, 145th and Lenox Avenue, and you wanted an upzoning uh, to put in a big new development, you say 700 million it would bring to the area of th nearly a thousand units, a huge amount of units, and 51% of that, I think, would have been affordable. But she said it wasn't affordable enough, and she said there weren't enough of them. Can't you meet her halfway? Can't you compromise? It's funny that you say compromise. We initially proposed 25% affordable, 75% market rate which is what the law in New York requires. Right. Um, we went up to 30%, then we went to 40%, now we're at over 50%. Mm -hmm. So actually we've compromised four different times. She still doesn't like it. Her position for many months was 100% affordable, and I think she's moved off that position, but you don't know with her because every couple of weeks she moves the goalposts. I think now it's something like 60% she wants affordable at levels that are simply not financeable. Um, she wants these for people making $20,000 a year, and God bless those folks, and they need housing as well. But in a private development with privately owned land, it is just not possible to do what she wants. What have you currently got on the table with her? What's your current offer, the 51% affordable? So we, we resubmitted our proposal, mm -hmm. and the proposal now actually, so people understand this, I think it's a good question, and it's an important distinction. Our original proposal, that she rejected was for 25% affordability. Our new proposal is a little over 50% affordability. Mm -hmm. Our old proposal um, had a museum and a cultural center involved. She objected to that. We took that out of the current proposal. Our original proposal did not have any units for senior citizens. That's in our current proposal. Okay. So we have many, many changes substantively from our original plan. But as you may or may not know, she still won't respond to me will not negotiate with me. Um, she insists on a public negotiation. So we like said- playing out in the press. Correct, she, she, she has, to be fair, because I like to be always honest and transparent, she has offered to meet in public with, with folks in the community and uh, she calls them a, a, a people's committee of housing or something like that. Mm -hmm. My experience in life is that you don't negotiate complex deals in public. Right. I am perfectly happy, which I've done before, to have public forums about this, to discuss this project in public, which we've done and I'll continue to do. But to sit and actually negotiate a deal, the fine terms of a deal, from my experience, you don't do that out in public. So, all right, so let's get it clear exactly. When you say affordability, you know, that is a kind of a, a bit of a shrouded term. In this case, how affordable are these these right. units. So it's important to also remember that these units are income targeted. Mm -hmm. So we are targeting them for certain income bands. 
And um, it's also important to remember that there's a law in New York that's been in existence for about seven years, the MIH law. I didn't make up that law. The city council and, and, and the mayor made that law. Mm. Um, that law requires that a developer, if they're choosing an upzone, to pick two choices, 25% at 60% of, 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 of AMI or 30% at 80% of AMI. So that is citywide, and that's the rule. Now, her objection is apparently that it's not affordable enough for folks in Harlem. What I would argue is that if you look at the demographics of Harlem very clearly, there is no question that the levels of affordability that we're suggesting, which by the way, are much, much better than what the law requires, mm -hmm. we believe there is a, a huge number of folks in Harlem who could afford this. Let me give you an example. We're offering 174 units for people making, a single individual making $28,000 a year, up to a family of four at, I think it's approximately $50,000 a year. So you're talking about two income or three income family making $50,000 a year. There are plenty of folks in Harlem who fall into that category. And we believe plenty of folks who are making 27, 28,000 a year in Harlem who would qualify. If you look at the next tranche of affordability, you're talking about folks making 60, 70, $80,000 a year. Again, family of three, family of four. We think there are a lot of people in Harlem who fall into that category. And finally, there is a higher category of affordability that are specifically meant to go for civil servants, blue collar workers, union members who live in Harlem. And I, I would suggest that the council member may not know her district as well as she thinks she does. Um, it's not a monolithic district. There are all sorts of folks who live in Harlem. And I think, you know, we changed the name of our project to 145 Harlem for All mm -hmm. for a reason. Because the only folks the council member seems to speak about are folks at the very, very low end of the economic spectrum. And that's fine and reasonable. But she doesn't seem to talk about folks like school teachers or nurses or healthcare workers or other folks who have come to me, who live in Harlem, who've said to me, you know, I make 50, 60,000 a year, I'm a single this, or I just got married. We want to stay in Harlem. We want a decent place to live with a doorman and maybe a pool and, you know, nice accommodations. That's what we're offering at 145. Mm -hmm. Those people are actually leaving Harlem and they're going to other parts of the city. I actually think that our project would keep people in Harlem. So you do have a, a line of communication with her at the moment. You've just written to her, I read, and I, I will quote in what you said, you want to do what you would describe as direct talks with no preconditions, no ultimatums or rigid demands. And you want the borough president, uh, the Manhattan borough president, Mark Levine, to kind of broker the arrangement, I guess. So are you willing to move more on the affordability? There's obviously, you know, you want to talk about this. So there's obviously something that you're willing to give. You know, as we sit here today, I, I can't envision giving much more than we've given. Mm. You know, as I've said, we've compromised at least four times to my recollection. And we're offering um, bandwidths of affordability that we're not required to comply with by law. Um, we've gone way above where we have to go. And people need to also remember that, you know, times have changed. I mean, interest rates are higher. Construction costs are higher. It is difficult to do a project like this at the best of times. And today it's even more challenging. 
So what I would say, and I've said this to the council member, who has not responded to me, that we need to sit down and figure out a way that addresses her le legitimate concerns, but at the same time acknowledges that in order to do a project like this, there has to be a mutuality of interest and there has to be flexibility on both sides. I think we've been very flexible. And just lastly, I would say, I think we need to talk more broadly about what this project's about. It is surely about housing, but it's about so much more. It's about providing jobs for people in Harlem. It's about career training. It's about a program to empower black and brown people, women in particular, who want to become entrepreneurs. It's about the first green energy district in New York. It's about all of these things. So I think that sometimes we get the forest from the trees, we get lost about what's really at stake here. Are you banking on that maybe she's taking a different approach? I ask that because there seems to have been a number of, since you pulled your development from the rezoning process, there were a number of highly controversial, quote unquote, developments that actually got approved mm -hmm. because the mayor stepped in and backed them, the Queensborough president stepped in and backed them. I mean, I'm talking about places like Innovation Queens. Right. Do you think, and that all happened after you pulled your project, so do you think there has been a, um, I guess, a tide turning in terms of how housing is seen and how development is viewed? Yeah, I think that we were the canary in the coal mine. I think a lot of folks saw what we went through, and I can't tell you to the extent to which the projects you mentioned and others benefited from the aggravation that we went through. So you think you kind of pushed Absolute. the conversation forward with, with pulling that project? Absolutely. I, I, a lot of folks have called me and said to me, you know, you unfortunately, with the sacrificial lamb, you went through this first, but it opened a lot of people's eyes about, you know, what's happening in the city. Um, I, I can't tell you to the extent at which what you just happened will help or hinder or not affect me at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the mayor has always been very good, always supportive of the project, so have city officials. And there are a lot of other folks who support the project. Um, we're talking about one person, uh, one person who is standing in the way of an enormously beneficial project. And, and I must tell you that, and I read this the other day, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I believe it is true, that 32,000 units of housing that would have been built under upzoning plans have been stopped. Now, I don't know why they've been stopped, but I can venture a guess that a lot of folks who are looking to come to New York or who are in New York thinking of doing this might say to themselves, this is not worth it. It's not worth the aggravation, the expense, and the headache of going through this process. Um, and you know, we talked about the lack of units in the city and, and the supply and demand issue. These are all things I think people are very seriously thinking about now, whereas perhaps a year ago they may not have been. Are you, um, I mean, you pulled the project from the rezoning process because I guess operating under the thesis that member deference would apply, which was everyone always kind of falls in line with the local council member. It has happened before that people kind of take their own path. Right. You didn't think that that was a possibility on this one? What made you so sure that you needed, um, you needed the council member on your side? To the best of my knowledge, the only time in the last 25 years that the council actually went around the member mm. happened once. It happened yeah. about a year ago at the blood center. At the blood center, um, I don't, th I don't love those odds. Yeah. Um, surely I could have proceeded, but I thought that it was important um, that we try to move forward with the support of the member. And I just at that point made a decision and said, "Look, um, 
I didn't want this to go forward and have that level of contentiousness with the council and the member. And I said to them at the point, look, it's your choice. If you don't want us to go forward, we won't go forward. But I also reminded them, as I've tried to since then, that there were implications for that decision, mm -hmm. right? So when you pick up the newspaper every day and you see that rents in Manhattan and in Brooklyn are at the highest record ever, when you see that folks are leaving New York because they can't find a place to live, and, and on and on and on, there are implications, real life implications, for not building housing. And I understand the flip side, that you have to build affordable housing as well. This plan has enormous amounts of affordable housing. Um, my question is, if this plan doesn't pass muster, what does? So who backs it? You said the, the mayor backs it, is it? The mayor supports the plan and, and, and the folks in, in, the, in his administration have been very helpful. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, the way things work in the city, in this city, is it's, a, it's more than a two-step process. And unless this gets voted on by the council, um, then it, it of course can't get approved. Are you seeing a different approach from politicians? You know, I, I, for example, the mayor, you know, we've talked about the project he backed in Queens, also backed a project in the Bronx. Yep. Um, the speaker's come out and said that she's going to pushing people to set housing targets. You've seen the, the governor, I mean, it's a separate issue, but the governor's come out saying she wants housing targets, she's going to push forward with development. I mean, are you seeing a different approach from these politicians? I think, I think a lot of folks are talking the right way. Mm. I think everyone recognizes. Talk is cheap, though, as they say. You, you said that. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, I think people are, are, are saying the right things, and I think they recognize the need to build housing of all types, mm. affordable and, and all kinds of housing. I think the $64,000 question is what we do to take that language and that support and then actually transform it into actually building something. And, and to date, while I'm, you know, I'm really more of a half-glass empty person, frankly, so I'm a little pessimistic. Right, you're not, a, you're not a, a optimist like most developers. Yeah, I, I, I would, I think there's an exigent problem in the city. And I think everyone acknowledges that. The question is gonna be, at what point do the decision makers in the city then say we need to move forward and we need to address the problem. Um, I think they're saying the right thing. I think they have the right intention. I appreciate the support and help I've gotten privately and publicly, but we're still sitting here talking about a project that has not yet gotten approved. I guess the issue is is that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're beholden to their voters. And, you know, you, the community is still, I think, in two minds about what sorts of... Community generally, yeah. I say. You, you know what, I, I, t I tell you what, um, two things. Number one, um, I, don't, I don't believe many times when a, a community leader or one community group says something, they speak for the community. What's the expression, the squeakiest wheel makes yeah. them, whatever that Loudest expression. Loudest voice. Right, they make the most noise. Second of all, I mean, I hate to say this, but you know, the NIMBY school of, of government doesn't work. Um, there are many times when local community activists oppose a particular plan. There are plenty of folks in New York who opposed the plan to cite community jails in their neighborhood. They oppose that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it should be scuttled. Um, there are plenty of folks who oppose having charter schools in their neighborhood. Doesn't mean they should oppose that. There are plenty of folks who oppose putting in homeless shelters 
or, f or places to treat people. But everyone says, we need better education, we need better schools, we need better facilities for the homeless, we need better apartments, we need jails. But then you oppose it. So, you know, you have to, at a certain point, recognize what folks say, take into what they say into consideration, work with them, deal with them, try to persuade them, and then try to find the right balance to accommodate their interests and concerns. But at a certain point, if you always um, um, stopped a project or didn't proceed with a plan because there were certain people who opposed it, nothing would ever happen. I guarantee you there is nothing in this city where you're going to find unanimity of opinion. There will always be people who object to something. How do we, um, I guess, get to this point? And I'm specifically interested in your views on how developers may have played a role in this kind of narrative that development is bad. This didn't come out of thin air. No, I, it, by the way, that's a very good question. It's valid. I think if you look back, there are lots of examples where developers did the wrong thing. You know, when you come into a community, you just can't barge into a community and say, we're throwing up a building or two and leaving. That's the wrong way to do it. You have to respect the community, meet with folks, try to understand where they're coming from. But life is like a balance. You need to achieve some kind of equilibrium, respect everyone's perspective. And unfortunately, that hasn't always happened with developers. Secondly, a lot of developers come in, promise a lot of things, and they don't deliver. So I understand there's a lot of skepticism with folks, and I understand the history of New York. I worked in government. I understand this very, very well. That's not me, and that's not what I'm doing. I do understand and appreciate people's concern and their hesitancy and their skepticism about this, and I think the problem has been that you haven't had um, developers and communities working in concert and sort of moving in the same direction. There's always been this sort of this, you know, this you know, butting of heads of people, and that's led to a lot of friction. Uh, I understand that. Um, I think there should be a new paradigm of development in the city, where you don't just simply look at the number of units you're building, but as I said earlier, jobs, community development, a community benefits package, working with the city, the private sector, trying to come together, and as I said, achieve that equilibrium or balance that works for everyone or for most people. That hasn't always happened. And that's why I think you've had this problem. I think a lot of people, too, are watching all this development happen. Like, just say you've lived in New York for the last 20 years, you've seen billionaires row. Your, your rent has not got any <laughs> cheaper. In fact, it's got a much worse. Right. And your life has not got any easier. So it's kind of hard to come around to the idea of, oh, development's good. That's the, the other problem, I think, is that because when folks think of development very often, they think of... Skyrise. Right. They think of billionaires row. They think of these huge buildings going up in Manhattan where rich people live. And I think, you know, that is sort of the um, Pavlovian reaction that people have to development. It's the wrong way to look at it. And urban planning, which is a very important thing, obviously, in a complex city like New York, working with brilliant architects, engineers, community activists, politicians, there could be a much better way that you develop a city. Um, that hasn't always happened in New York. And I, I understand that. Um, in this particular case, we spent five years working with and talking to and trying to get a consensus built, um, we were different from other folks who sort of came in in the cloak of darkness and said, we're throwing up two massive buildings. It's not what we did here. Um, it, unfortunately, this didn't work either. In defense of developers, that's a lot of the problem they have. You know, they say, look, we spend an enormous amount of time, effort, and money. 
We try to work with people, build coalitions, and at the end of the day, the squeaky voice or the squeaky wheel, one or two people step in. Look, this happened with Amazon. Still blows my mind how um, two or three politicians and 30, 40 members of some organization drove the most profitable company in the world out of New York. It's mind boggling to me. How do you think, you know, we're moving into um, a primary season, believe it or not, because <laughs> it's a very short turnaround for these city council members. How do you think um, housing and development is going to play out in this primary? I think it's going to be an important issue. There are lots of issues. Look, I don't live in the district. We, we own, have a major investment there. Um, I'm not going to get involved mm -hmm. in, in the primary. Um, it's something that I have no desire to get myself involved in, and the folks who live in Harlem will decide. But there are lots of issues that are going to be important there. The economy, crime, education, quality of life, housing. I would argue that what we were trying to accomplish touched on all of those things. Because again, it's not just about housing. It's about employing people in Harlem who would have worked on that project. It's about taking young people, and we offered to have young people in Harlem that we would have paid internships. So they would have worked and learned at architecture firms and engineering firms. It's about that. It's about keeping that block vibrant and active, which would help reduce crime. It's about all those things. So I do think it'll play a big role. I can't tell you how it'll play out. How, what happened with Al Sharpton's um, museum? I mean, I heard that that was, that was all going ahead with your project. The yeah. next thing I, I hear, he's talking to Don Peebles. Yeah, there was not, go there was not going to be a cultural center or a museum at the site. Does he still back the project? I, you would have to ask him. Okay. Um, but he, um, well, the National Action Network is currently a tenant um, at the site. Um, don't know what the future will hold for them, but right now they're a tenant, but w there are no plans to put a museum or a cultural center on that site. In fact, one of the material differences, the changes we made, in response, by the way, to community pressure, was to convert the space that was going to be used for a museum and use that for housing. So that was one major compromise that we made and the plan that we resubmitted does not have a museum or a cultural facility. It has more affordable housing. Has that been a sour point with anyone? Maybe him, for example? Um, he is uh, entitled to his opinion, I suppose. Um, last I checked, he doesn't live in Harlem. Um, but again, you'd have to ask him about what his opinion is. I can tell you that we heard from a lot of folks in the community, community activists, community leaders, folks who just live there, um, who told us that their priority was not a museum. It was housing. It was housing. Mm -hmm. It was housing and jobs and economic activity. Um, it wasn't a museum. What's next? You're just still trying to get the negotiations back up and running? So um, we've recommenced the process, and there's a whole whole rigmarole, <laughs> rigmarole and process we have to go through. So we're doing that with our lawyers and our professionals. But it's I, definitely not off. You know, at one point it looked like this was off. No, no, no. We we. But that's another compromise. I, I guess you'd say that we made. We had a point said we're done, and we will just pursue the as of right and move forward which could have actually been market rate, but like 60. 50,000 50, square feet okay. would have been purely market rate. The way it would have worked is a purely market rate project, which is still possible, would be approximately 50,000 square feet of market rate housing, uh, a self-storage facility, massive self-storage building, 
uh, a truck depot, parking, and retail. Pa we're pursuing parallel tracks. On one track, we are speaking actively to potential retail tenants. Um, one just opened up a couple days ago, a new one just opened up. Um, we are expanding the operations of the truck depot, um, and we're continuing on that vein. We have had very extensive discussions with self-storage companies, so that's one track. On the second track, we are going through the process that we're required to uh, on the rezoning. At a certain point, we'll get to a fork in the road, and we'll have to make a decision about which way we go. As I said, I've always said this, we hope that we can take the road of housing, jobs, green energy district, et cetera. However, that decision is not mine alone. I will need the support of the local council member. And as of this discussion that you and I are having, she adamantly refuses to, to agree. Um, and she knows about the options, and she has publicly said that she would prefer market rate housing, trucks, and self-storage than any deal that would have that much market rate housing and not enough affordable in her, her conception. She said that, that's her decision. I, I think she's wrong, but that's not my decision. What's your gut telling you is gonna happen? <laughs> I think ultimately, I think ultimately that reasonable people um, will prevail. And I think that it, it's, it seems implausible to me that given the exigent housing crisis that we have, and given the level of unemployment um, and lack of opportunity in that community, it just, it, it's implausible to me that we won't be able to find a way to move forward. However, right now, you know, absent something changing, uh, and I really can't envision what that is at this moment, that won't happen. That's Bruce Teitelbaum. He wants to build a big housing project, some 900 units at 145th Street and Lennox Avenue. I did reach out to council member Kristen Richardson Jordan's office. Um, I didn't hear back. We will update you though if we do hear anything or if she has anything to add. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.